Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty, live in the Morton studio. Today on the show, we're going to talk just a little bit about biofuels, but we'd be happy to discuss anything that's going on on your farm or answer any of your questions. If you'd like to give us a call, our number is 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. You could also email us, radio at agphd.com, or you can find us on Twitter, agphdmedia, or Brian Hefty. So my brother Darren's going to be out traveling for another couple of days, so it's just me in studio today. We're going to get to your questions here in just a minute, but before we do, I guess I just wanted to say... It's at this time of the year when we start getting lots of questions in from all over North America and beyond. And most all those questions have to do with crop that's in the field right now. So the number one thing I just want to encourage you to do today is scout your fields. Sometimes we get busy (laughs) and our scouting consists of, oh, I drove past that field. I just encourage you get out in that field because there's all kinds of stuff happening every day and yields are impacted every day, sometimes positively, unfortunately, a lot of times negatively. If you think about it, your maximum yield is the day you plant. And then every day, all you can do is try to protect as much of that yield as possible, but your yield potential really goes down every day is kind of the way that I look at it. So the more you can protect it from weeds, from insects, diseases, having the right or having insufficient fertility, anything. I I mean, I, I just really encourage you, scout your fields and scout them often. Also, Scout them from end to end, because this is another thing that's that's real common. And our dad used to talk about this growing up. He's like, yeah, just look at this one neighbor here. The front side of his field always looks clean and it looks nice. The back side, they don't care. They don't, they don't walk it for weeds. They don't care as much about the fertility or anything else. So it's mainly for show. But anyway, I, I don't care where you're at in the field. You can have insects, weeds, diseases, uh, have fertility issues, and you see what the crop prices are today. There's just tremendous incentive to raise a few more bushels. So anyway, scout your fields. That's my number one message for the day. All right, so we are going to get to biofuels and talk about that a little bit later in the show. But right now, let's get to the Ag PhD mailbag. It's the mailbag. All right, this first question comes from Andrew. He says, if I'm growing tomatoes and I want to add calcium, how would I do that without raising the soil pH? Could I treat the, in his case, he says, calcium carbonate with vinegar and then add it to the plant soil? Uh, No, what I would suggest, Andrew, is that you just go out there with gypsum. So what gypsum is, it is calcium sulfate. Gypsum is pH neutral. It's not going to raise your pH, and then that'll give you the calcium that you need. Now, it's also going to give you a bunch of sulfur. You may or may not need that sulfur. Keep in mind, sulfur is leachable when it gets into the sulfate form. So we usually say that sulfate's about half as leachable as nitrate, but nevertheless, on a lot of soils, almost every year, you really need to be adding sulfur. And when you start talking about tomatoes, I will say this. When you have good sulfur levels out there, you're probably going to have just a little bit better taste. So if you've been having any taste issues with those tomatoes, if you don't have adequate calcium and sulfur, that could be a part of it. So yeah, our answer to this question would be gypsum, forget about the lime. Oh, I I would say now, if you do want to raise pH at some point, 
certainly go to lime. That's that's absolutely the way to go. But when we're talking not raising the pH, gypsum is how you get that calcium out there. That's the best thing that we've typically found. Okay, uh, next one here is from Brandon. He says, guys, I got a problem. I prepaid our local co-op to spread 35% zinc on our best farm where we wanted seven pounds of zinc applied. So it must be actual zinc, I'm assuming, which would bring my average parts per million up to 5.3 pounds after application. Well, they ended up putting on 14.5 pounds of actual zinc on that farm, which would bring the average parts per million to nine. I'm wondering, will this hurt my yields? I have a field average of 30 parts per million of P1 phosphorus, and I added 170 pounds of DAP in front of my corn. Fertility in front of corn and soybean. I do fertility in front of corn and soybeans every year. My yield goal is 250 on the corn. Now, I'm wondering, since they double applied the zinc, and now they want us to pay in-season price for that double amount they put on, is this right? I heard many co-ops give you the prepay price if they over-apply. Okay, so you got two main questions here. First question was yield. Um, it's possible that could be hurting your yield. In in our experience, what we've found in probably five years worth of data now on our farm, and, and we're doing one acre grids on, well, at least 2,500 acres out of our 3,400 acres that we farm. So we've got a lot of data points. And what we found is if we don't get that phosphorus to zinc ratio at least in the range of six to one or eight to one, I mean, a lot of times our best yields are coming in the eight to one to 10 to one kind of range. But if we don't have it at least at six to one or so, yeah, it's possible that the yield could be going down. Now, you're counteracting that a little bit by putting 170 pounds of DAP on. But let me put it to you this way. I really like, between my applied fertility and what I've got in the soil, I want to have about 100 parts per million of P1 phosphorus out there. Because you start running the math on this, and you said your yield goal is 250 on corn. But here's what I want you to think about. Let's think about your very best spots. So maybe you're you're even up to 270, 280 there. Well, it takes a fair amount of phosphorus. So let me just share with you what that is. I'm just pulling up the Ag PhD fertilizer removal app. So let's let's start with 250 bushel corn. Grain removal only is 88 pounds. And stover uh, for phosphate, you're going to remove another 40. So you're talking 128 pounds. You got to have 128. Well, look at your 30 parts per million of P1 phosphorus. Just running the simple math on that, we're going to convert that over to phosphate. Here's how we do that. So we'll take our 30 times two, that gives us pounds per acre. All right, I'm assuming you're running six inch soil tests. So 30 parts per million, 60 pounds per acre. Now you take that number times 2.3 to convert it to phosphate, that's 138. And remember what we just said, you're going to need 128 just for that, this crop alone. And sure, by putting your 170 pounds of DAP out there, I, I mean, that helps. You probably have 80 pounds there, but you're, you're talking over half that soil's phosphorus you got to remove in one year, I'd mump the phosphorus levels. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Boost your productivity and profitability with Soil Warrior from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and your yield potential in just one strip-till pass. Now that's ROI. Contact us today at SoilWarrior.com. Pentair Hypro 3D nozzles are your premier choice for fungicide applications. Syngenta fungicide application field trials have shown Hypro 3D nozzles provide a yield advantage of up to 10% over other nozzles, maximizing the return on your fungicide investment. Learn more at pentair.com hypro. It's planting season. 
race against the clock season, mistakes can't happen season, and no one helps you face it all like John Deere. Putting technology in your hands that gets you in and out of the field faster, that makes your spacing and depth more accurate, and that gives you the confidence that this season will be your best season. See what you have to gain at johndeere.com slash gain ground. Warehouse, what can we do for you? Yeah, I'm looking for some nitrogen. All right, we're running low and it's awful pricey, but uh, let me check. Hold. The answer to low supply and high prices for nitrogen is Invita, a microbe with systemic nitrogen fixation. Invita works throughout the foliage and roots, providing a right place, right time source of nitrogen to maximize yield in corn, wheat, and soybeans. Yeah, we're all out, but... You know what? I'll take some of that Invita. <laughs> That's what I was going to recommend. Book your Invita while supplies last. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here, live in the Morton studio right before the break. I was answering a question from Brandon, and I only got to half of his question. We talked about the zinc level and having that up to nine parts per million. I'm not, like, super worried about that. Just make sure you're putting plenty of phosphorus out there. But the last part of that question was, or his, his second question was, on the price. <laughs> so... Honestly, in a lot of cases, yes, the people who overapply, so it's their mistake, they'll usually give you maybe not the prepay price, but at least a better price than what in season would be. So I just work with them with the understanding that, look, I, I mean, I'm sure that they didn't intend to do that. I'm sure they just had an operator who made a mistake and legitimately costs have gone up on fertilizer. So I'm just trying to say, I wouldn't give them too hard a time because you did gain something by having that zinc out there. The zinc isn't going anywhere. It's going to stay in your field for years. You're going to get to use it. So you're getting a lot of good out of it too. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to defend the co-op or anything. I'm just trying to say, I'd, I'd be reasonable, give them at least a little bit of grace and, uh, and try to work with them because chances are you're going to want to be working with them for many years to come. And if you give them too hard a time, well, then they're probably going to give you a hard, an extra hard time the next time something goes wrong uh, in the other direction. So anyway, uh, today we are talking about biofuels on the show, and I'm super happy to be joined now by our friend Mark Rausch. He's with the Auto Channel, and uh, Mark, I just got to tell you, I, I get your emails and I read stuff from you on a fairly regular basis about ethanol and biofuels. I really appreciate it. And I, the, the floor is is yours here, so we can talk about whatever and go whatever direction you would like to today, because you're the expert on this topic. I'm not. But what 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 is top of mind for you when we start talking biofuels today? Well, uh, thank you very much for those nice things that you said. And uh, I always am ex excited and happy to speak with you and to be addressing your audience Thanks. as well, by the way. Uh, I think the, the big buzz, of course, right now is 
the E15 move that that suddenly E15 is going to be available and and that that everybody's freaking out about it. Um, there have been all these stories in the press about E15 and how how it's going to cause more smog and and you know basically it's the reenactment of everything that's gone on in the last 20 years about how uh, E10 was going to destroy the world and now E15 is going to destroy the world and how nobody is going to when they pull up to a service station to a filling you know, to filling pumps that they're 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 not going to understand what the labels say and and all those kinds of things right yeah and and it's just all so silly uh and what occurred to me this morning was that this whole thing about the low level ozone is really just the modern uh, or i should say t it's today's blend wall argument you know going back uh, 10 years ago eight years ago 15 years ago there was this thing about that there's a blend wall that meaning that when you take uh, when you look at the, the cars that are on the road, that cars cannot cars and trucks cannot safely use anything more than E10, and that based upon the number of cars and how much fuel is used over the course of the year, that uh, it, we can only use X amount of gallons of ethanol, and we are already there, so we're at that blend wall. Well, of course. Anyone that knew anything about the subject knew that the E10 blend wall is nonsense, that, that any vehicle can use far more than E10. Right. So, so it really was nonsense. And as, as we at the Auto Channel talked about this, as you guys, you and your brother talked about this, that, and, and some of the advocacy groups talked about this, and some, some of the other very good, uh, uh, great advocates for ethanol talked about this, we all said, what are you talking about? Any car can use E15, E20, E25, E30, and so on. Yep. So there is no blend wall. Well, the same, so, so that was the blend wall argument. Uh, and it's sort of gone away. You don't hear anybody talk about that anymore. So now what they've come up with, they meaning the oil industry or, or the dark forces, <laughs> uh, <laughs> what they've come up with is that there is this ground level ozone problem yep and, and and it's it's like saying well don't you know that we had smog before ethanol you know there's something called or that's referred to as la smog yep and la smog is not just the smog that's in los angeles it it became the the term the nickname for that type of smog everywhere in the world so New York suffers from L.A. smog, Chicago suffers from L.A. smog, you know, and so on. Well, what everybody seems to have forgotten, all these these people who are coming forward in with, with these arguments, is that this L.A. smog started to form in the 1930s and 40s, or, or started to become a real problem in the 1930s and 40s, and 50s and 60s, mm -hmm. and then it, it became... Acid rain was a result of that, right? And yep. so we had all this, but, but we weren't using ethanol in those days. We were just using gasoline. So, yeah. so, so 
Okay, so talk so talk to us just a little bit about this smog argument because the way I've always understood ethanol, it's clean burning. So what are we worried about the the whole smog thing for? If we can pull gasoline out and insert ethanol, we should have cleaner air, not dirtier air, right? Right. Well, there there's a um, an abnormality that exists in which if you burn what what they talk about on, the, on, on these burning charts is that at about E10, you get more of this, uh, 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 sorry, e, that E10 will evaporate faster than gasoline. Ethanol, gasoline evaporates faster than ethanol. However, E10 seems to evaporate slightly faster than gasoline. Okay. But as you add more ethanol, it actually drops back down. And if you get to the level of E20, E25, E30, you are now below the level, this evaporation level of um, of the of the vapors, right? Yep. Of the reed vapor pressure. Uh, uh, chart. I should have said before the reed vapor chart. So, so they're they're latching onto that to say that oh, because of this slight abnormality that E10, E11, E12 evaporates faster than gasoline by itself, that that's creating the problem. But again, through all the years of the development. As, as we've seen, or, or the worsening of smog in cities, there was no use of ethanol. So what are you talking about, right? I mean, it can't, that's not the problem. More And more than that, the ethanol, because it burns clean, is not putting any particulate matter into right. the air. Yep. And it's the particulate matter that is the, the problem. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's the benzene. I had I had some guy the other day write to me and say that as ethanol burns in the in an engine, it releases benzene. And of course, it made me laugh. Because, <laughs> right. Because like you're laughing. Because <laughs> there is no benzene in ethanol. No, but there is so, in gasoline. Right. And so and, and they seem to have forgotten that. And of course, uh, I then, you know, had this situation fairly recently with a. Uh, a state senator in Maine who who told me how very proud she was to have been uh, able to help expand the use of E0 gasoline <laughs> yep. instead of E10. Now, I mean, that's basically poison. That's Right. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing good about it. It's all poison. You know, it's funny yeah. when you talk about that. I often bring up to people that want to support gasoline. I'm like, okay, whether you're you're using E10, E30, or E100, or, or, well, not E100, but E0, are you right. wearing personal protective equipment? Because if you're not, right. then you are exposing yourself to all the things that are in gasoline. We're talking to Mark Roush here. Mark, hang on with us. We just got a quick break. We'll be right back and talk more biofuels. Stay tuned. Take a second and listen. You hear that? That's the sound of your roots growing where they've never gone before. There are additional nutrients and water in your soil, hidden in tough to reach spaces. 
With MycoApply Endoprime, hyphae attach to the root hairs to reach small areas inaccessible to big roots, even some that are tied up in the soil. Applied in furrow at planting, MycoApply Endoprime uses four, four unique species of mycorrhizal fungi to go where roots can't. Unlock the potential of your corn crop with MycoApply Endoprime, and by nurturing your soil today, you're helping to ensure future harvest will be just as bountiful. For more information, talk to your local retailer or visit valent.com slash endoprime. Always read and follow label instructions. Come to the Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships event this summer. Here at Ag PhD, we're always looking for ways to support and encourage folks entering the ag industry. That's why we're devoting a full day, Saturday, June 25th, to the free Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships event. Though this day is geared towards high school and college students as well as young farmers, anyone with a desire to learn more about agronomy is more than welcome. Our hands-on sessions in the field will include a comprehensive guide to scouting, ways to improve soil and crop health, the role of natural microbes in farming, and how to best collect and manage on-farm data. Plus, we're giving away tens of thousands of dollars in scholarships to eligible attendees. So whether you're a college student or just want some good agronomy information, this is one event you won't want to miss. It's the Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships Day, Saturday, June 25th on the Hefty Farm near Baltic, South Dakota. Learn more and register at agphd.com. Maximum application flexibility. Maximum yields at harvest, whether or not. Relentless is the kind of control you'll always get with Anthem Max Herbicide from FMC. Low use rate Anthem Max Herbicide protects corn and soybean crops from the toughest broadleaf weeds and grasses, including water hemp, palmer pigweed, foxtails, crabgrass, and more. Dual modes of action and lasting overlapping residuals also help you minimize resistance in your fields. Its easy to tank mix formulation and wide application window make Anthem Max Herbicide the crop protection choice that's ready when you are. Rain or shine. Weather or not, relentless. That's Anthem Max Herbicide from FMC. Visit your FMC retailer or ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions. Thanks for listening today to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty. We're broadcasting from the Morton studio today. And right before the break, we were visiting with Mark Rausch. He is with the Auto Channel. You can check out his work there at the Auto Channel. But... Uh, uh, Mark, we were talking about ethanol, and you had brought up something right away when you said this E15 move, and a lot of people are freaking out. I assume you mean by that they're freaking out because they're worried it's going to hurt their vehicles, or what is making them freak out? Uh, well, of course, it any any argument against ethanol has to start with people coming up with the same old silliness about how it's going to hurt an engine how it's going to eat the plastic, eat the rubber, eat the metals, and so on. Ethanol doesn't do any of that. Ethanol is compatible with more types of rubber, metal, and plastics than gasoline and aromatics. So it actually is less corrosive, not more corrosive. Um, so that's so we have to get past the, uh, the engine-damaging nonsense, yep. uh, firstly. Second thing is, to go back is this conversation about 
that that the ethanol is causing low level ozone, which is causing the smog, or what is referred to as LA smog. Yep. And and so again, it, it's the theory is that because it evaporates faster, it causes more of this vapor to get into the air and to cause the smog. But but the biggest problem of this of smog, when, and certainly in the development of of what then became known as acid rain, is is the chemicals that come from gasoline, not yeah. from ethanol, and during the days that we were hearing so much about acid rain, we weren't using ethanol in the fuel. So it certainly wasn't ethanol that was causing it. Right. Okay. So the funny part about all of this is that in the tests that were done by the government labs and, and then by the EPA when they 12 years ago issued the uh, uh, their statements that that E15 was going to be okay and we're going to, you know, we could use that. They had tested E20 as well as E15. But the in their press releases, they didn't come out and say, hey, E20 is okay. They only said E15. And their rationale for doing that, and, and the reason I know this is because I asked this question during the press conference. And, and the rationale is, that they weren't requested to test E20, they were requested only to test E15. And so they're only issuing information about E15. But but in doing the test, they knew going into it, the government labs, that they should test a range, right? They should not just test E15, but a little higher, a little lower, and so on, in order to get control, yep. a control test. And so the E20 was, was just as good. Okay, so the reason I bring up E20 is that by the time you get to E20, actually by the time you get past E15, this little anomaly of where the, the blend will evaporate faster than the gasoline, but as you pass E15, it goes back the other way. And so by E20, there, there is not this issue. And, and so really, at this point, and particularly because we're now, you know, a decade after the EPA came out with this, the, this ruling, we should, we should really be talking about E20 at this point, at, at, the, at the barest minimum, not E15. So we should be talking about that uh, E20 is now going to be available yeah. uh, year-round, or E25, or E30. Because what everybody, you know, chooses to not talk about is that in Brazil, they've been using in excess of E15 yeah. um, since 1978, actually since 1977. But, um, and, and there is no problem. And of course, you know, occasionally people will say, oh, it's different cars or different thing, you know, different engines and they make them different. They don't, they're exactly the same. Uh, as as what we have here, and more importantly, I, I had this I had this discussion a couple of days ago. I have these discussions, you know, every every single day. So, <laughs> um, so it's really it's ago, it's really compression ratio. Why you can't run, let's say, E eighty five in a normal car, right? Um, it's not so much a compression ratio as as it, that it combine that there's three aspects. 
there's a timing aspect, spark timing. Yeah. There's the the uh, the uh, the fuel injector, right? It has to be a little bit different. Yep. And then the 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 piston stroke length, in order to be optimized, should be a little bit different. But but actually, you can take any vehicle that has fuel injectors right now, which is anything in the last 20 years. And if it has an onboard computer, which almost you know all of these vehicles have, you can adjust the software so that the software recognizes the E85. And therefore, yeah. any car will run on E85. Right. <laughs> right. And, and the only thing that will happen, if you, if you take a car, like, uh, you know, I've talked about this on your show before and elsewhere. For a number of years, I owned uh, a, Ford, a non-flex fuel Ford Taurus. Yep. I, I purchased it specifically to do long-term testing on, on ethanol blends. And I would do a lot of splash, ten, splash blending of my own, you know, in order to emulate an E30, E40, E50 yep. kind of blends. Yep. And I, I went up as high as using one day, you know, I filled the tank. It was, I was almost at, at empty and I filled it completely with E85. The vehicle ran a little rough. It ran, yep. started, went fine, and, and it ran a little rough compared to normal. So, you know, after I burned a few gallons of, uh, of fuel, I went back and I put some E10 back in it, and so it brought the level, the overall average down, and then the vehicle ran fine. And um, and, and as I've talked about and written about, it's in my book, I, I show the smog test that my vehicle took in which they look at you know these the the particulate matter that gets sent up into the air and they had to run the test twice because they thought something was wrong with the machine <laughs> when they did it the first time yep. and the reason for that is because it was registering no particulate matter yeah. in any of the three categories and and you know the guy said, "Well, you know, I, I said I knew why, because I had been running uh, high-level blends. I was yep. running in a non-flex fuel car. I was primarily running it on somewhere around E30, 40, 50. Sure. And so he said to me, "You must really keep the car clean, and and you could keep the car as clean as you want. That has nothing to do with it." Uh, but it was because I was running higher blends, and and so then I said I said to him, I said no, it's because I'm using ethanol. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mark, we got about one minute left. Is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with here today about biofuels in general? Um, I would much rather have my fuel money go to American farmers than to go to foreign dictators and despots. <laughs> well said. All right, we've been talking with Mark Rausch. I really encourage you, go to theautochannel.com, check out his work. You could also uh, buy his book, The Ethanol Papers, uh, that was published uh, fairly recently here. And Mark is just a tremendous resource for just talking about biofuels and trying to straighten out some of the nonsense that's out there. So we'll continue discussing biofuels throughout the show today, and we'll give you some more examples of things and, and talk through a few more things. But anyway, Mark, I just want to thank you a lot. 
lot for being on the show. We really, really appreciate it as always and look forward to seeing more from you and uh, theautochannel.com. Brian, if I could just say yeah, one thing. Rather than, I, I appreciate if anybody actually purchased my book, but they don't need to. They can go online and read it entirely for free online. And the, the importance was not to sell a book. The importance was to get the information out there. So if they go to theautochannel.com and they do a search for the ethanol papers, they'll find the online version that they can read entirely for free. And I, I'm happy for them to go do that. Fantastic. We appreciate it. Again, Mark Roush. Thanks. We'll be right back. Maintaining your crops is as important now as it's ever been. Howler, a revolutionary fungicide from AgBiome, can help. It provides long-lasting protection from a broad spectrum of foliar and soil diseases that affect crops. Howler is OMRI listed, has multiple modes of action, and has minimal pre-harvest and re-entry intervals. It's flexible, easy to use, and is available right now. Visit agbiome.com forward slash Howler to learn more. Growing up on the farm, I woke up as early as mom and dad. I put as many hours on the tractor, changed as many teeth on the tiller as my brothers. It doesn't matter if you're young or old, man or woman. When there's work to be done, you put your boots on and you do it. I do that on my farm and in my job at Case IH. My name is Kelsey, I'm a farmer, and I work for Case IH. Case IH, built by farmers. Be sure to attend the 2022 Ag PhD Field Day. I'm Darren Hefty. The Ag PhD Field Day isn't until the last Thursday in July, but we invite you to mark your calendars today for our biggest event ever. Each summer on the last Thursday in July, we invite you to attend the Ag PhD Field Day. The reason we invite farmers from across the country and around the world to our farm each summer is to say thank you. Ag PhD TV has had a brand new episode each week for 24 years, and we've been doing a radio show almost as long as well. At this year's Ag PhD Field Day, we'll have way more equipment and equipment demonstrations than we've ever had before. We've got a lot of new technologies we'll put into our research plots on site, and we'll have great family entertainment, including a kid's area, music, fantastic guest speakers, and free food and drinks all throughout the day. Please go to agphd.com to learn more, and don't forget to join us on Thursday, July 28th for the free Ag PhD Field Day. What's new from New Farm? Longbow EC Herbicide, the latest in our portfolio of versatile weed management tools, gives you another Carfentrazone option, taking aim at more than 60 broadleaf weed species. And did we mention economical? Longbow EC's low use rate makes it a flexible tank mix partner with most burned down non-selective herbicides. Ask your dealer for Longbow EC, available for fall. It takes balance to be successful in farming because what you get out of it depends on what you put in and Corteva AgriScience gets that. Introducing Nutricia and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer, a biological product that naturally captures nitrogen from the air it's a sustainable way to add balance to your traditional nitrogen methods and maximize your yield potential. Embrace a balanced approach to nitrogen management this season by visiting Corteva.us. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. 
I'm Brian Hefty, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. We're talking biofuels. If you've got a question for us, you can give us a call at 844-44-AG-PHD. But next on the show, we've got Steve Howell with us. He is with uh, Mark Four Consulting and a Senior Technical Advisor for the National Biodiesel Board and Chair of the Biodiesel Task Force. Um, that's a lot of titles there, Steve. Uh, so you got a lot of experience with biofuels from the way it sounds. Tell us just a little about, a bit about the work that you do. Sure. Glad to, to do it, Brian. So I, I've been working in the biodiesel fuel quality and biodiesel standards area since 1994. I chair that ASTM biodiesel task force. So what, what we've been doing is working kind of behind the scenes over the past 30 years to get all the quality standards and do all the testing to make sure that biodiesel is going to work in the new diesel engines that are out there today and the, the newer diesel engines that are coming down in the future. So that's kind of been, been my role, you know, over the last 30 years. And, uh, glad to say that uh, it's pretty exciting right now. The fuel quality in our, in our fuel today is, is really, really high. It's so much better than what it used to be back in the early days. And we had a, a lot of small companies making, you know, very small quantities of, of fuel. Basically now it's yep. commercial applications, the billion, you know, billion, billions of gallons of fuels in commercial plants. And uh, we are just not really seeing any major issues or problems out there in the field um, with today's body. So, so it's really great to see. Awesome. All right, so how about the RFS volumes for biodiesel that were just announced by EPA? Can you share with us a little bit of information for those who haven't heard about that? And what are your feelings as we move forward with EPA and some of the other government organizations? Yeah, that is certainly one of the hot topics out there. And we've been working for years as an industry with EPA to, to increase the volumes that are required under the federal renewable fuel standard. Uh, and we're happy to say that, that this year we got one of the largest volumes that we've ever had in terms of increases as an industry. Uh, over 330 million gallons per, more per year are going to be required by EPA. Um, that's a, a pretty big growth, and we're, we're really excited about that. Um, EPA also denied all the pending small refinery exemptions. So we can be confident that those new volumes put out are really going to be the ones that, that really end up being used, and that's going to be uh, really great for soybean farmers and for our industry moving forward. Um, you know, right now we're, we're in a, a fuel shortage. Obviously, everyone knows prices for fuels are high. And the fact that we have biodiesel and renewable diesel out there in the marketplace today, we're about 5% of the overall fuel supply in the United States right now. The fact that that's out there makes fuel about 4% lower in price than it would be if, if there were no biodiesel or renewable diesel out there. And of course, we're domestically produced. So we think biodiesel and renewable diesel are going to be an increasing part of a, a domestic future, of a low-carbon future. Um, and, you know, EPA's willingness to increase our volumes, even in today's uh, economy, just shows how important it is uh, to increase domestic increases of fuel here in the United States. You brought up the low-carbon market. Talk to us just a, a, about that a little bit more, because I know, like, the ethanol plants, for example, they're talking about pumping their CO2 into where they, they've had oil wells so they can basically sequester that carbon, in effect, down below the ground. How about for uh, a biodiesel plant? Is that necessary, or where do you stand with all that carbon market thing? So that is actually one of the biggest driving forces for the biodiesel, renewable diesel industry today. Um, you know, for our fuel, we're in a little different position uh, than the ethanol. The, the CO2 in the air grows our, our plant, and we have about an 80% carbon reduction, just the fact that we use oils and fats as our feedstock. So we're already at 80%. Um, and any more 
carbon that you can sequester through the body cell operation would just be a good thing. So we're already in advanced fuel under all of the various regulatory policies out there. So what that's doing, though, is we're seeing in the carbon markets, um, we're seeing a big increase in voluntary carbon use. So carbon markets are being you know, legislated by various states and the federal government to reduce climate change. But what we're seeing is the private companies, the Amazons, the Walmarts, you know, the, the PepsiCo's that have carbon reduction goals, they're saying if we're going to reduce our carbon reduction goals, then we're going to have to reduce the transportation costs for all of our goods. And that's causing the railroads, uh, ocean-going marine shipping, of course, over-the-road trucks to say, hey, we need to reduce our carbon score. And if you put uh, biodiesel for every gallon of biodiesel that you put into a, a current uh, diesel engine or application, whether it's a railroad or a, a marine vessel or, or a, a semi-truck, that reduces 80% of the carbon from that gallon of fuel. So we are seeing some of those you know, new markets that weren't there before. And our industry is slated to grow from 3 billion gallons today to, to 6 billion gallons in 2030. And we're, we're targeting 15 billion gallons for 2050. So a pretty exciting time right now. Okay, but that's still going to be a relatively small percentage of all the diesel fuel that gets used. How high can the percentage be without having any engine issues and that kind of thing? Well, you, you hit it in the sweet spot of, of what I do kind of every day in, in my day job. Um, I, I work with the engine companies on that, and I work with the fuel standards. So the, the fact that our fuel quality is so good right now and is so high is really boding well for using higher blends. Um, we have a very cooperative relationship with Cummins Engine Company. Right now, most of the, the engine companies support B20. We are okay. seeing some companies go up to B100, and Cummins just put out their new corporate vision where they're going to come out with a fuel agnostic engine where from the head down, it's going to be pretty much all the same, no matter what fuel you use, whether it's natural gas or any of the low carbon fuels out there, hydrogen, biodiesel. Mm-hmm. Um, and the top will be different. You know, the head of the, the top will be different depending on what fuel you use. But they put in their corporate vision that they're looking at B40, 50, 60, and then B100 in their engines in the future. So so that, that issue, you know, they're seeing people want to use low carbon. People don't want to stop at B20, which is our common blend today. Yep. They want to go to the higher levels. And the engine companies are now working cooperatively with us to do the research necessary to make sure that, that we know everything that we need to know there. And fortunately, the quality of our fuel is so good, we may not have to tweak the fuel much more, you know, if at all, you know, to be used in higher blend levels. Um, all we have to do is just make sure we address the coal flow properties and keep the fuel warm. And there's lots of different ways to do that. Can you explain just a little bit when a soybean seed goes into the biodiesel plant, what comes out the other end? Because it's not just biodiesel. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's that's one of the things most folks, you know, they're kind of used to the ethanol process, you know, with corn where you pick 100% of the corn kernel, you, you, you ferment that whole kernel, and then about 70% becomes ethanol, and 30% becomes dried distiller's grains, which you sell into the feed market. For soybeans, it's quite a bit different than that. For soybeans, you crush it first. You take the soybean and you turn it into something that looks kind of like peanut butter. And then you you extract the oil out of that, and that becomes soybean meal, and that's about 80% of the soybean. So when that soybean goes into a a plant, it goes into a crushed plant first, and they make mostly soybean meal. The 20% that's left over the oil, that's what we take into the biodiesel operation. And then we take that into a biodiesel operation we react it with, with methanol, usually methanol. We can use ethanol, 
someday we may be using ethanol if it becomes cheap enough and cost effective enough for production. Right now, methanol is a lot cheaper, so so we use methanol. But it's basically a one-for-one you know uh, transformation from a gallon of uh, soybean oil makes a gallon of biodiesel, um, and that's basically how we make the biodiesel. So so it's a lot different for soybeans and turning it into biodiesel than it is on the ethanol side. And that's one of the reasons why our carbon score is so high is we just use that high BTU content oil, you know, in our production. Steve, we've got about a minute left. Anything you want to leave our listeners with today talking about biofuels, biodiesel, any of the stuff you work with? Yeah, I, I think probably the biggest thing is, you know, we're seeing everybody today um, try to reduce carbon. We're seeing the big companies reduce carbon. We're seeing governments try and reduce carbon. And we're starting to see that impact the food market. So we're starting to see farmers are, are starting to look at, hey, how can we reduce carbon on our farm? How can we sequester carbon? How can we improve our farming practices so we can capture some of that carbon credit? Well, using biodiesel in your equipment is one way you can reduce the overall carbon footprint of the farming that you do. So that and the, the quality of the biodiesel is so much better than it was, you know, 15 years ago. We had a lot of farmers try the fuel 15 years ago. Some yep. had some coal flow issues. Some had some other issues. And, and basically, you know, we're, we're not like your father's Oldsmobile anymore. Our fuel is very high quality, high production. You know, we're not the Samsung 7 that, that blew up on airplanes. You know, we're like an iPhone 12 or an iPhone 13 or 14 or 15. <laughs> so we, we really have high quality fuel today, and farmers should really take another look at using this on their operation, you know, to support their own product, if not to reduce their own carbon score. So that would be the takeaway I'd have now. Steve, great stuff. Again, that was Steve Howell. He is with Mark IV Consulting and a Senior Technical Advisor for the National Biodiesel Board. Steve, thanks for the time today. Appreciate it. With superior materials, craftsmanship, and best-in-class warranty, a Morton machine storage or workshop is built to stand the test of time. To learn how we can help you expand your farm operation, visit mortonbuildings.com. Get an extra semi-load out of your grain bin. The end zone from Farm Shop MFG can increase your stored beans moisture from 10 to 13%. On a 20,000 bushel bin, that's a free extra semi-load. Visit farmshopmfg.com for more. At Corteva AgriScience, we want to keep farms healthy and productive, today and tomorrow. That's why we're investing in a robust pipeline of naturally derived biologicals. Meet Nutrition and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer. It's a sustainable nitrogen fixation product that facilitates crop growth and optimizes yield potential. With the fluctuation in fertilizer prices, Utricia N is a reliable solution. It can be used alongside your traditional nitrogen program to enhance your ROI this year. For more information, visit Corteva.us. Come to the Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships event this summer. Here at Ag PhD, we're always looking for ways to support and encourage folks entering the ag industry. That's why we're devoting a full day, Saturday, June 25th, to the free Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships event. Though this day is geared towards high school and college students as well as young farmers, anyone with a desire to learn more about agronomy is more than welcome. Our hands-on sessions in the field will include a comprehensive guide to scouting, ways to improve soil and crop health, the role of natural microbes in farming, and how to best collect and manage on-farm data. Plus, we're giving away tens of thousands of dollars in scholarships to eligible attendees. So whether you're a college student or just want some good agronomy information, this is one event you won't want to miss. It's the Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships Day, Saturday, June 25th on the Hefty Farm near Baltic, South Dakota. Learn more and register at agphd.com. Thank mm-hmm. you. 
what does it really mean to provide the best crop nutrition? With AgroLiquid, it means getting a one-of-a-kind approach, one that caters to your specific agronomic needs. You're getting experts who will work with you to create a program unique to your operation, all while accounting for the quality of your soil and the products you're already using. It's not just a product, it's peace of mind knowing we've thought of everything. That's the AgroLiquid way. Apply less, expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Compromise is nice if you're at the playground or scouring yard sales. But farmers know better that middle grounds have no winner. That's why there's Revitec fungicide, fast-acting and long-lasting, preventative and curative, disease control and stress reduction. So leave the settling to little Tommy at the seesaw, an old bargain bill, and take your full prize in yields with Revitec fungicide for uncompromised performance. Always read and follow label directions. Thanks for listening to our show today here on Ag PhD Radio. We've been talking about biofuels and answering some of your questions, and we'll get back to the Ag PhD mailbag in just a minute. Before we do that, I just wanted to share with you one thing that we hadn't really covered yet today in this biofuel discussion. We did maybe just a little bit with Steve Howell that we just had on the show, but there's a lot of talk about food versus fuel. And so I bring up corn all the time because that's that's the thing. I mean, all of our grain corn we have on our own farm goes to ethanol. So let me just share this with you real quick. When they have a corn kernel, roughly one third of it is going to go to ethanol. One third of it's going to go to dried distiller's grain. And one third of it's going to go to carbon dioxide. And this is the reason why they want to have this carbon dioxide pipeline so they can store a lot of that down in the ground because there aren't enough... Uh, there isn't enough consumption of, uh, of let's say, pop or anything that's got carbonation in it. That's where a lot of the CO2 has gone in the past. But as there's more ethanol production, there's more CO2 produced than what we need for any of the carbonated beverages that are out there. So that's where it comes back to this whole low carbon versus high carbon score for an ethanol plant. But anyway, when we start talking about what's actually going into that dry distiller's grain. So I said roughly one-third of that corn kernel goes to that. Well, all the nutrients are in there. The only thing that they're pulling out for the ethanol is starch. That's it. They take the starch out. Well, if you want to replace starch, we got all kinds of starch laying on top of fields in the fall after harvest. You can just take your stalks, bale those up, and, hey, here's a whole bunch more starch. But if you want the nutrients, then that's what's going all into the dried distiller's grain anyway. So I don't really look at it as food versus fuel. I look at it as food and fuel. And the thing that I do like the best about the biofuels is we are producing them here in North America. And we don't have to go way overseas to get oil. And then we got to defend the oil and all this other stuff. So... I guess when I look at biofuels, I look at clean burning, much lower carbon, way safer for the environment. Because like ethanol, for example, pure ethanol is simply pure alcohol. So you can drink pure alcohol, obviously. Now, ethanol, they will denature it. So they'll put something in there so you can't drink it. Uh, 
makes a lot of people sad that they do that. But anyway, the point is, it's still very, very, very clean other than the tiny little bit of stuff they throw in to denature it so people can't drink it. Anyway, we are big proponents of biofuels. It helps farmers. It helps our countries. And it's way safer for the environment. When you look at the things that are actually in gasoline and diesel, it's not good. The two biggest things I always talk to people about in gasoline are benzene and xylene. Xylene's horrible for you. Look it up someday. Benzene is a proven cancer causer. And people talk all the time about pesticides and, oh, I'm so worried about Roundup causing cancer. It's like Roundup's a proven non-cancer causer. And yet people will pump their own gas every day without wearing personal protective equipment. And I'm like, there's a complete disconnect here. So you're worried about Roundup that you never even come in contact with. And yet you've got something that's a proven cancer causer over here that you're pumping into your car every single day. And you're not worried about that at all? I, I, I just, I don't get it. All right. So anyway, if you've got any other questions, anything else you want to talk about with biofuels or anything else, give us a call, 844-44-AG-PHD. Going to jump right back into the Ag PhD mailbag. The next question here comes from Lee and Loretta, and they're asking, how can voles be eradicated? So if you aren't familiar with voles, they look like a mouse with a longer snout. And I, I would just say, when we talk about moles, that's something different. They're a much bigger rodent. With moles, we like getting rid of their food, which is usually grubs. So kill the grubs, the moles leave. Well, with voles, they're herbivores. They're not going to eat grubs or anything like that. They're going to eat plants. So it's a little bit different, and it's a little harder to remove the voles. So what a lot of people will talk about is removing vegetation. Now, if they're in your lawn, you're obviously not going to do that. They'll also talk about protecting young trees because voles like to eat on the trunks of young trees. So if you protect them, then they won't have that food source, at least. You can certainly use live traps. You can use repellents like castor oil or something like that. And worst case scenario, could you use poisons? Well, sure you can. I just, I always worry about that a lot. And the reason why I worry about that is what happens if, your pets or your little kids or anybody gets around those poisons. I just, I, I'd be real cautious about doing that. And I just know I would not do that on my own farm. All right. Next question here. Let's see. I don't have a name, but the question's from Arkansas uh, asking about conventional soybeans and how to control sickle pod. So sickle pod, oh, and also teaweed, which would be, um, which would be prickly cyta. So sickle pod is one of the toughest weeds that we've got, unfortunately. So that's why a lot of people have gone away from conventional beans where they have sickle pod and they go to Roundup, Liberty, Extend, or Enlist so then they can use one of those herbicide options. Any of those would work. But if you're in conventional beans, it's tough. What I would suggest is I'd go Authority MTZ pre-emerge. I'd also add python to it because that'll really help on the sickle pod, not so much on the teaweed or prickly cyta, but definitely on that sickle pod. So that's what I would do. The other thing uh, that this uh, this question had in there is talking about cereal rye, and it was five feet tall before they terminated it. All right, look, when you have a cover crop that's that tall and you're going to throw out pre-emerge herbicides, because in this case, uh, the in this email, they used Valor, Metribuzin, and Prowl. Some of that is just going to get tied up in that five-foot-tall cereal rye. 
So I would terminate it first, wait a couple weeks, and then spray my pre-emerge herbicide. And I know it's another trip, but if you want more of that residual herbicide to be in the soil and working on your sickle pod and teaweed, that would be my suggestion. Now, post-emerge for sickle pod, um, your, your best bet is classic first-rate scepter, but it's, it's tough. None of those are very good. They have to, the plants would have to be tiny, just tiny. As for the prickly cyta or teaweed in conventional beans, cobra and bassagran are the best. You certainly could spike in some resource to help the bassagran even more. So that's our answer on that one. All right, next one is from Landry, who farms in West Central Illinois. He says, um, I've been listening to your show and taking your advice on things. And last year, we had the best yield we've ever had, 220 bushel average, and we had one field do 245. Uh, we put tile into some of the fields that were the worst with drainage, uh, but no grid grid tile yet, and drainage is probably still our number one limiting factor. Anyway, he says our goal is to get to 300 bushels per acre. My soils have organic matter levels of 1.5 to 2, so I'll be honest, that's, that's kind of low, and if it's me, I'm going to probably reduce my tillage and plant more corn so I can hopefully raise that organic matter faster. But anyway, his CEC levels are 15 to 20. He says, in the fall, I applied 150 pounds of anhydrous uh, along with 250 of mez, 250 of potash. I sprayed fall burn down. This spring, we planted our 111-day corn on May 10th. I've already applied my pre- and post-herbicide, and I'm going to do an aerial application of fungicide at tassel time. I sent you my tissue tests, and I just wanted to know what... Oh, yeah. And no, I don't have soil tests. He says tissue tests and my herbicide that I used. What do you think of the overall program? And can you get back to me on any recommendations you might have? All right. The first thing I'll say is when you're doing very early season plant tissue testing, you're probably not going to learn much in corn or soybeans. We still do it in corn. We don't in soybeans very early season, but it's about mid-season, when that corn is about waist high to shoulder high, that's a lot of times in our experience where we found the lowest levels of nutrients. So I'd be testing especially at that point. If you want to send us your soil tests, I'd love to see those, and then I can hopefully help you out a little bit more because these tissue tests, it's so early in the year, I don't know that I'm going to be able to decipher a whole lot there. Other than this, you mentioned several nutrients, but boron and many of the micros were not mentioned. Your boron tissue test levels are really low, and I don't know if your plants will all of a sudden hit boron down in that soil, but I'd be concerned about those micronutrients. In terms of your herbicide program, I would just say, okay, you use Caprino, Atrazine, and Roundup. And that's fine. I don't have any issue with that. It's just with the Caprino, I, I question... Caprino is Laudus and Varro, and, I, and Varro is an ALS. So I'm just wondering what weeds you're killing with that. Is it necessary to have that Varro in there or not? So if you let me know what you actually are trying to kill for weeds, I can tell you whether or not that's a great recommendation. All right. We hope you've enjoyed our show today. Just talked a little about biofuels and answered your questions. Uh, before we go, just want to say thanks to our production staff. My sister Janelle was running the controls today. And thanks to everybody who called in, our guests. We appreciate that. And thanks to you for listening. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.